Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by State Farm. Look, as you guys know, I tend to give it to you straight. And while I know a lot of things, I also know there are times when I need to lean on others for help. When it comes to insurance, State Farm is the one I count on. I love that they make insurance easy. You can monitor your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim with our app, which was just awarded Best Insurance Mobile App of 2019. And thanks to their network of 19,000 agents, you will have someone local to walk you through options and help you choose a policy that truly meets your needs versus cookie-cutter coverage. But what I appreciate most is that they don't mess around. They don't bother with gimmicks or games, just helpful guidance you can rely on. Go out and get the insurance you deserve. Get State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Get a quote or find an agent at statefarm.com. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Thank you to Yola Tango, as always. We have a repeat guest today, Dr. Jim Kim, someone very important in my life, uh, older brother, mentor figure. He was a founder in Partners in Health, former president of Dartmouth College, most recently president of the World Bank. Currently, Dr. Kim is the vice chairman and partner in Global Infrastructure Partners, and he is doing his best right now to help on the front lines, particularly the state of Massachusetts, go on the offensive against COVID-19, and uh, he's someone I look up to for a variety of things, but uh, he's the only person I know that's been on the front lines of a lot of different medical emergencies over the past few years, whether it's in Haiti or AIDS in Africa. Dr. Kim has been instrumental in making sure that those places were able to fight these viruses. And um, he's been someone that's dedicated his entire life to bettering the world, particularly with the poverty-stricken. And I have a lot of questions for Dr. Kim. I'm going to get into this podcast pretty quickly. But I first wanted to talk about this thread on Twitter that is going to relate to a lot of what Dr. Kim's going to talk about in this podcast, particularly about how the country of Korea, South Korea, has done a remarkable job in stemming the tide against coronavirus, COVID-19, and uh, just how seriously they've taken a stance against it, which is, uh, I think, a stark contrast to how we are taking it in America. And I think it's important to be able to share this. And um, you're going to hear all of how we need to go on the, quote, offensive in just a second. But Michael Kim someone that I found that popped up on my Twitter thread writing about the differences in Korea and America and how the two countries respond to the coronavirus. And I'm just going to just read, Michael Kim says, upon arrival to South Korea, they take your temperature at the airport and ask if you've experienced any symptoms. If you have, they move you through a separate area and give you a coronavirus test. If you haven't, they take you to another area and interview you. They also install ankle bracelets. You are required to install an app on your phone and enable location tracking at all times. You are required to self-report symptoms in the app twice a day. If you don't have symptoms, you need to report that too. This goes on for a period of 14 days. During this time, you are not allowed to leave the quarantine dormitory or your home if you've chosen to self-isolate at home. You cannot take public transportation or taxis, and you cannot self-isolate in a hotel or Airbnb. If you don't have a home, you must use the dorm. If you break quarantine, you are fined 10000 US dollars and face jail time. Also, they check your location on your phone frequently. My wife had her location checked 37 times in a three-day span, and they've caught enterprising folks who have left their phone at home, and decide to go out. During this self-isolation, you cannot have contact with anyone during this time. They give you special trash bags to throw your trash in, and people in hazmat suits come and collect your trash upon request. You are assigned to a caseworker who is responsible for making sure you are following all the orders. They will call you and text you to make sure you are okay. They will also send you care packages that contain lots of food, gloves and masks, sanitary pads for women, etc., if there's a new coronavirus case in your general area, same city or district, you'll get a public safety alert on your phone that tells you about the person, age, male, female, city, and provides updates as they receive them. I think that's very similar to like the reports you get for emergency warnings on your phone or if a, a child's been kidnapped. Um, he goes on, I forget to mention 
that Korea has also mobilized their army to provide more operations and logistical support at the airports. We are required to get a COVID-19 test within three days of arriving, which is the only activity that allows us to break the quarantine. You have to do this in coordination with a caseworker. As a family of four, we were done testing in about 10 minutes. Test results came in in seven hours. In response to recent public safety alerts, my family changed our plans for the next several weeks to avoid certain areas. Places with lots of traffic, like Korea's version of Walmart, have temperature monitors installed so you can see everyone's temperature. There's absolutely no protest or demonstrations about the anti-freedom measures or invasion of privacy. I'm not an expert in Korean politics, but it seems like everyone accepts these measures as required to address this pandemic. While we still take precautions like wearing masks in public, washing hands frequently, using hand sanitizer, etc., I feel pretty confident that the government knows everyone who has coronavirus and is tracking things very closely, which means I don't have to worry as much. And like some of the articles have mentioned, if you have been to a place where someone who has coronavirus has also visited, someone will contact you to get tested and undergo self-isolation for another 14-day period. Contrast that with the situation in the U.S. No one really knows whoever has coronavirus. So you have to assume that everyone has it. And there's really no actionable plan to address that particular issue. Not trying to be political, just want to showcase the situation in a country that seems to have an actionable plan that has resulted in a dramatic decrease in cases and fatalities in case people were interested. And thank you, Michael Kim, at Michael V. Kim, one word, at Twitter. I don't know you, but I really appreciate you writing this out. You talk about not being an expert in Korean politics, in anthropology, in also medicine, being a expert in the field of medicine, that is Dr. Jim Kim. And uh, I really was honored to have him on this podcast again. He is an incredibly busy man because a lot of people, nation states, governors, are all trying to get his ear as to the best advice he can give them to combat COVID-19. So without further ado, I will shut up. Here's my conversation with Dr. Jim Kim. Well, we have uh, a repeat guest, the great Dr. Jim Kim, founder of Partners in Health. And, you know, you should listen to the last podcast we did together because I want to sort of get right in the heart of the matter. You're focusing a lot of your efforts, obviously, on COVID-19 right now. Can you just give everyone sort of a quick what the hell is happening right now? Because I trust your words over anyone else's right now. Well, you know, Dave, thanks for having me on again. And I'm doing something else now. I'm trying to build uh, infrastructure in developing countries. And uh, I only got involved in this because uh, it just brought back so many memories of uh, the battles that we'd fought before. Uh, you know, we, we, we uh, in, in the late 1990s, uh, found these outbreaks, these huge outbreaks of uh, relatively huge anyway, outbreaks of drug-resistant tuberculosis and the whole public health community said, no, you, you, they're not, it's not treatable. It's impossible to treat in developing countries. And we said, well, why is it impossible to treat? These people are uh, spreading it to their family members. It's, you know, it's, a, it's an airborne infectious disease. We've got to treat it. And so um, uh, against the very loud objection of the um, objections of the public health community, we started treating the patients and we had success treating them. And so we were able to change policy of uh, the World Health Organization and others. And then exactly the same thing happened with HIV. You know, we started saying, wow, you know, HIV medicines are great. This was in the early 2000s. You know, we, we, we think we can treat people in developing countries. And once again, the public health community said, no, it's impossible. It's complicated. And we just had a huge war. We were saying you can't leave 25 million people in Africa just to die because you think treatment is too difficult or complicated. And so, um, you know, we, we, um, uh, again, just started in Haiti with a few patients and showed that the treatments work very well and we could do it in Haiti. And eventually I had to go and, you know, work for three years at the World Health Organization to do it, but we changed the, those ideas as well. And so I was watching as the public health community seemed to be giving up in the face of uh, COVID-19. You know, very quickly, everyone in the public health community said, it's too late for containment. We can't can't do what they did in Asia because it's too late. And this was at a time when there were many states in the United States that had zero cases reported. And so I thought, oh my goodness, is it happening again? Is the, is the, is the global public health community uh, backing off again? And, and, and luckily the answer is actually no. In Asia, 
you know, China, Hong Kong, uh, uh, South Korea, in in Singapore, although they're having some problems now, but in Singapore, uh, uh, Taiwan, they were very aggressive. They were applying the full public health approach, and they were getting their outbreaks uh, much, much more under control. And now we're seeing on in Australia and uh, in New Zealand as well, they put in place the full public health approach, and they're going towards zero. So it's just something happened in the U.S. Uh, I, I can't, I can't, you know, completely blame the public health community. We didn't have the testing. We didn't have the the seriousness about this uh, uh, pandemic early enough. And so now, you know, we represent a third of all the cases in the world. Uh, but I got involved because I just wanted to make the point that it's never too late. You know, you, you, we, there, there's a tried and true public health approach that we've just now simply got to put into place for all kinds of really important reasons. And, um, and, and so I sort of, I, I tried to talk with as many people as I could. I called governors. I, you know, the response is coming from states. So I was calling governors and finally, um, I, um, I, I was able to reach Charlie Baker of Massachusetts and Governor Baker, uh, I've, I'd known him for 20 years. And so he, he listened to me and I said, look, uh, Governor Baker, there's, we're not doing some very fundamental things that we should be doing. We are just on defense. We're just doing social distancing right now. We got to go on offense. We got to go after the virus. And I told him about conversations I had with people like the, the, you know, the leaders of the Korean CDC. The Korean CDC said, you have to hunt this virus. You have to get out in front of it. You have to anticipate where it's going to go and you have to stop transmission. This transmits so easily. It transmits among asymptomatic people. This is such a nasty, sneaky, bad virus that unless we get out after it, uh, we will be, uh, you know, on our back foot playing defense the whole time. So Governor Baker said, I like it. I want to go on offense. And this was five weeks ago at a time when nobody in the United States was talking about this kind of aggressive approach. Nobody was talking about contact tracing. And I remember telling Governor Baker, you know, you should know that when we announce this, there could be derision, there could be criticism, uh, you know, there, there could be, um, uh, you know, uh, lots of negativity about you taking this course. And, and Governor Baker, to his great credit, said, I'm ready for that. Let's go forward. So now, you know, things have changed a lot. Everybody is interested in contact tracing. Uh, you know, at Partners in Health, we're, uh, we're, we're dealing with, um, with Massachusetts, Ohio, and, uh, and, and Illinois. Uh, we're focusing most of our efforts on Massachusetts because we really need to get that right. Uh, but we're also now trying to, to, to help other states get this response up and running. You know, Dave, we need to do uh, everything possible, everything that we know works from all the other experiences in the world to try to get after this virus. And unfortunately, um, uh, uh, you know, there's not very many states that are doing that right now. What's going to make them change their mind? Because from a restaurant's perspective, I know a lot of our peer group in various states are just like throwing their hands up in there being like, are you serious with your regulations or lack thereof? Like, we need better guidance why is the default setting in this situation to be scared and to wait for someone else to make a decision? What, what's going on here? Well, we, we are in uncharted territory. I mean, this has never happened uh, before, certainly not in the United States. And that's part, of the, that's part of the issue. I think we just didn't believe that it could happen in the United States at something of this scale. And in, in fact, you know, for the countries that have responded so well— if you talk to the Koreans, they'll tell you, you know, mares, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome in 2014 scared the hell out of them. I mean, they, they, uh, you know, they were looking at a virus that didn't transmit very well at all, uh, but killed 30% of the people that infected. And so they decided we're going to get ready for the next one. And, uh, they did. They, 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 that when an epidemic starts in, in Korea, the laws change. And then, you know, for that, period of time when there's an epidemic ongoing, uh, the Korean government can get access to not only your GPS positioning on your phone, get access to your credit card records. So they, they had a very aggressive approach. And the folks, you know, the countries that were affected by SARS, Taiwan, Hong Kong, China, uh, Singapore, uh, they were all ready because they knew how bad this could be. We just weren't there. And so we don't have that experience. And so we have to be creative. But uh, getting creative means that we're out there actively running after the virus, actively chasing it, stopping transmission. And then as we as we go forward, coming up with creative ways of being able to open businesses. Uh, I don't think we're at that level of creativity yet. And th this is why I wrote this uh, this piece in The New Yorker, basically saying, OK, folks, just just sitting back and waiting 
uh, and, and doing only social distancing and then deciding arbitrarily, well, we're going to open now, uh, it really could be a, a disaster. What we need to do is to get really aggressive, go on offense. And, and what we've seen in, in the places that have done this is that once you have all the systems in place, social distancing, testing, uh, contact tracing, an effective system of isolation and, and quarantine, different in every country because of different uh, social mores and culture. But once you get those things in place, about two months after that, uh, uh, you know, the, the rates should come down very quickly. And then you can start thinking creatively about how you start opening uh, uh, businesses and, and, and opening up the economy. But until you get those things in place, uh, it's very difficult to talk about opening up. Dr. Kim, can I ask, um, there's a lot of reports of, you know, what people are calling quarantine fatigue. I think we've reached this point now, which is six weeks in, where people are, in America especially, or I mean specifically, getting very itchy to reopen. Governors are starting to put plans out there to reopen the economies. Um, there's just a general vibe in the air of people getting annoyed with this. Um, I wonder, have other countries who have successfully implemented the smart quarantine and gone on offense and done these things, have they dealt with this issue, this, this kind of cultural issue? at all? Yeah, you know, we have seen this itchiness with uh, quarantine everywhere we've ever worked. We saw it in Liberia during Ebola. We saw it in Sierra Leone, Guinea. We've seen it in Haiti during... I mean, th this is this is hard. Quarantines are always really, really hard. So I would say that literally every country that ever had to go through this, uh, it's hard for them. I, you know, frankly, I think it may be a little bit easier in Asia, but but mostly because uh, they've seen that that uh, it works on the one hand, and they've also seen how bad it can get. Uh, you know, with uh, in, in in historical cases, so it's a it's the most perfectly natural thing. Uh, but you know, if you look at what's happening with the virus all over the world, right? Um, there, the the sort of um, uh, magical thinking that's going on in the United States, and it's based on some uh, some modeling. Some models have suggested that the curve of infections in the United States is going to follow the curve of Wuhan, China. And it's just not. There's just no way. I mean, uh, you know, Wuhan, China did all these things and did them very aggressively, did, did you know, the entire uh, uh, what I call a five-point plan. And they did it. They did it incredibly aggressively. And that's what made the curve go downward. There's no state in the United States that's doing uh, anything close to that. And so uh, the thing I worry about is that you're going to see what just what we're seeing now. Um, the cases are going to go up and down, up and down, up and down. Uh, but the reproductive rate, the, the so-called R naught, how many cases result from a single case? It's going to stay above one, and we also see that in Spain and Italy. In Spain and Italy, the Spain and Italy have done much more severe social distancing than the United States, but they also didn't do the full response. They didn't do contact tracing. They didn't do the isolation and quarantine. They didn't do those things, and so. Unfortunately, I think um, uh, at the current rate, uh, unless we get much more aggressive, uh, the curve is going to stay flat and keep going on and on and on. So uh, what we're saying is the first thing you got to do is put these systems in place and you got to put them in no matter what, because you have to prepare for the next one. You got to prepare for the opening up. Oh, and by the way, if you do it really well, the number of cases will go down and then prospects will change. I think if you said to people, okay, let's, we're going to do this for Two or three more months, but on the on, in addition, we're going to get really aggressive and go go up uh, against the virus. You know, and, and right now you need to recruit a whole new cadre of workers. You know, there there are um, uh, you know we we're recruiting a thousand contact tracers in Massachusetts to supplement the existing system so that we can contact trace all these people. And what we're hoping is that there will be a good number of restaurant workers who uh, join that force. I, I can't tell you the number right now, uh, but what, what we're what we're saying is building up this workforce to do these very labor intensive things could also be a really good jobs program. And then you would be aligning the spending that the U.S. government is doing with the actual ending of the uh, public health crisis. Uh, this is what's really really important. You know, um, we're not going to get out of this unless. We, we really tackle the public health problem. This is not fundamentally an economic problem. It's a public health problem. And so far, the spending, which has been critical and important, has been to try to, 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 to prop up the economy, uh, get, get some money into people's hands. Uh, the monetary policy has been sort of, uh, uh, you know, as radical as anything you could imagine. But what we haven't done is put 
I think what's going to cost is hundreds of billions of dollars into stopping the public health problem, into, into attacking the public health problem. Once we do that, then I think people are going to see a way out of this and then uh, the, the quarantine will be much more tolerable. Um, for the audience that may not know what R-naught is and, you know, it's something that people hear a lot, what, what are we trying to get it to? And what exactly is it? <clears throat> so what you're looking for is for every single case that you you have that's positive how many new cases result from that and so um uh, if if left unchecked that is a high number anywhere from as low as two and a half to six new cases for every case that's positive in other words that's how many they infect right and so what uh, what you try to do is to reduce that number down below one if you can get that number below one where less than one new case is resulting from every positive case, then that's when the the curve really starts to go down. What we've been seeing is that um, uh, with very strict social distancing measures, that number can go from three, four, five, down to around one. But it's very difficult to get it below one because this is what happens. Uh, With social distancing, you stop transmission between households so that, that you really, you stop a big part of the, of the transmission between households. So it doesn't, it doesn't stay at, like in, in China, it was at 3.5 to 4. It doesn't stay that high, but it goes down. And in China, it went down around one, but the, the, the Chinese feel that it was only after they put the other measures in that it dropped to 0.1. It dropped really quickly at that point. What are the, what are the other measures? So the other measures are you have to test very broadly, uh, you have to do contact tracing, and you have to do isolation and quarantine. So let's just give you a very specific illustration of it. So, uh, uh, you know, no no cars in the road, uh, nobody can get out, and so you absolutely uh, clamp down on the transmission between households. But then what they started seeing in China and what they're also seeing in Spain and Italy is that then all the new cases came from intrafamilial transmission. Family members were, were transmitting it to each other. So how do you get at that? Well, the way, the way they did it in China uh, was by ma- making it mandatory that as soon as anyone is positive, they're brought to a different hospital. They, they built 12 new hospitals to, in order to be able to do this. Um, but it, you know, in Korea, it was different. And in, in New Zealand and uh, in Australia, it's different. And in the United States, it'll be different. But the point is, the only way to get this thing to dip below one is that you go after all forms of transmission. You can't count on just stopping intra inter-household transmission to get you where you want to go. You also have to stop the transmission within households. And so to do that, every person who's positive, you have to call them and you have to tell them you know, what they need to do to keep themselves healthy and safe and also to protect other people in their household. And then you have to then call all the people in the household, all their contacts, and figure out a way to keep all of them safe. Uh, you know, if you or if you're living in a big house in a suburb somewhere, you know, on Long Island, um, you can probably do that in your home. But for people who live four to a single room, five to a single room, they can't really do that in their own homes. And so, uh, you know, in, in in Massachusetts, where we started this program, uh, we're uh, we're uh, finding dorm rooms, we're finding empty hotel rooms where people can go, uh, be safe, have food, have medical care. And then uh, not transmit the virus to the people living in their household. People in the household who we suspect might have the have the uh, virus as well, we can put them in similar places. Now, you know, we'll have to be really creative in how we do this because we can't do it by force. We have to, you know, respect the the cultures uh, and, and and mores of of, uh, of our country. Uh, but what we've seen in country after country that's been successful, they have found a way uh, to stop that that transmission as well. And we can do it. We can do it in the United States. And we're, we're, we're trying in Massachusetts. Dr. Kim, do you think that like uh, in Hong Kong, where in, when someone arrives there, they immediately go into quarantine and they put like a, a low jack on their ankle? <laughs> and, you know, one of my friends has one right now and they're not allowed out of the house. And, you know, in Taipei, food gets delivered to you in you're a quarantine dorm, basically. So you're cordoned off from anyone. Is that going to have to happen in America? And can that happen? You know, I don't, I don't know if it'll happen in quite that way. Um, but, you know, again, uh, I think um, uh, the, the reason I'm, I'm so involved in this now is because so many of these things have just been dismissed out of hand. Oh, you can't do that, right? And again, 
I have seen that movie so many times before. And I would, I would say that the difficulty of doing something like that should be a conversation starter, not a conversation stopper. How would we do that? How would we be able to, um, uh, you know, make sure that we're not importing cases? Well, you know, there's so much more that we need to do. And even, I I don't know what the exact uh, uh, rules are now in New York City, but two weeks ago, uh, you know, far from uh, going after uh, in, intra-household spread, unless you were in a hospital, you couldn't get tested. So if you were to call the state authorities and say, I think I have coronavirus, I have these symptoms, they would just tell you to stay at home and try to, you know, abide by this, that, or the other um, uh, method of uh, of keeping your family safe, but you couldn't get tested. So, you know, there's a, such a big distance that we have to traverse still to get to a point where, um, where uh, our response looks anything like the best responses in the world, that that's probably, you know, it, it, we have to figure out a way to prevent infections coming in from the outside. We have to do that. How we do that, I'm not sure. But boy, I mean, uh, uh, you know, Korea does that. Uh, Hong Kong does that. A lot of, you know, demo, quote unquote, democratic societies, whatever you mean by that. Um, but, you know, they're, they're already uh, doing that kind of quarantine anyway. And, you know, I was, um, uh, uh, if, if I were to go to, to, uh, to Massachusetts from New York, uh, the suggestion right now is that I quarantine myself for 14 days before going out into, uh, uh, in, in, you know, into the into the world in Massachusetts. So we can do some version of it. We, we have to figure out what works. But uh, the the, um, the 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 most important point is let's get started on figuring what that what, what that's going to be. If you had complete power to just not have to deal with bureaucracy and just be on the offensive here, what would you do? Well, I think first and foremost, you know, I'd, I'd fix the testing problem. <laughs> I think it's a, it's a fixable problem. Um, now, you know, the reason we're starting in Massachusetts with this aggressive approach is that uh, this fantastic institute called the Broad Institute um, is uh, came out and said, "Look, we're gonna we're gonna stop doing our research, and we're gonna do twenty to thirty thousand tests a day." And so, when I heard that, and, and the Broad is run by you know, one of the guys who, um, uh, who sequenced the human genome, brilliant guy, Eric Lander. I called Eric and I said, really? He says, yeah, we're ready to do that. And so that made it possible for us to think, okay, now it's time we can go uh, on the offensive in Massachusetts, right? So I'd get, I'd fix the testing problem. Uh, I would, um, I would create a contact tracing program just like the one we're creating in Massachusetts completely integrated into the mechanisms already existing in the state and reach every single person who tests positive. I'd go, you know, o- over time, we'd go even further and test every single person who has symptoms, Go become more and more aggressive in how we test. Uh, I would find a way to isolate and quarantine every single one of them. And certainly for the uh, for, for people who, uh, uh, you know, are living in poverty, who are four or five to a room, we would find ways of supporting them so they could keep themselves and their family members safe. And then I would start thinking about, so what's it going to look like when we open up? The case, if if we do all those things and are going after every single transmission, uh, the the uh, the curve should start looking like it's going downward very quickly, and then we could be very creative. I, I you know, I, I think I wouldn't um, presume to understand what you guys would do in the restaurant business. Um, I, I can't see how you can. It's hard for me to understand how you can do forty percent. Uh, of your business and still, you know, make a living. But what what else is there that we can do? I, I don't know the answer to that. But uh, if you have those conditions that I talked about in place, then you could let uh, people in the in specific uh, uh, businesses be as creative as they can be. You know, I'm working with a, a Brown University right now um, to try to figure out what would it look like to open universities. You'd have to be very aggressive at testing, tracing, and then separating students. Uh, but again, I think this is the reality we're going to be living in for a while. And um, uh, it, it's only by being aggressive that you have a chance to bring the full um, creativity to the table. It's so hugely frustrating because, I mean, I believe, and I'm, as I'm sure you do, Dave, like what Dr. Kim is saying and the data he's presenting to us. And and I have great faith that like what you're talking about, Dr. Kim, is exactly what we should do. I just like... Like you said, I'm 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 probably the problem here in thinking like this is I don't see how this gets done. Does it happen state by state the way you're talking about? How does this happen, and and what is the alternative? What happens yeah. if we don't? So, Chris, the thing is, um, you know, the reason I got into this 
is because, again, I've seen this movie before, right? I mean, th- think about it. How are you going to treat can you, treating 20 million people with HIV in Africa? Nobody could see how that, that could get done, right? And so um, uh, the reason that Partners in Health is so involved in this effort is because we can say things like, well, we actually did contact tracing in Liberia during Ebola with illiterate community health workers, right? So this doesn't scare us, right? And um, I, I think that the most important thing, everybody everybody seems to have an opinion on whether this is doable or not, right? And if you look at the people with some of the strongest opinions on whether this is doable or not, very few of them have ever tried this, right? So it's like, I, okay, so... Um, uh, I understand you want to opine, and there are just so many talking heads now on on, on television. And they'll say, and I, I, I know who they are. I know what their background is. Some of them are mathematical modelers. Some of them are sort of public health people, but they've never tried this. It's like, you know, if you've never tried this, uh, please keep your opinions to yourself. <laughs> because we don't, we, I, we just, I just don't see, you know, look, if the virus shifts, Right. And it starts behaving differently than it has before. Great. I'd be the first one to applaud it. If there's a vaccine much faster than, than uh, anyone thinks, great. I'd, I'd be the first one to applaud it. Right. Uh, but we're, it seems like we're trying to find every excuse not to do the thing that's been proven to be effective, but that's hard. Right. Uh, you know, a million cases in the United States. It would have been so much easier to do this when they were 153, right? It would have been so much easier to start it then, but we didn't. We d- we didn't have the testing. I-, I admit that we didn't have the testing capability then to do it. But I just, you know, every single public health person should have been screaming and yelling, "Okay, guys, we've got to move right now. We've got to get the testing going. Uh, we have no choice. We have to put these things in place." And so, um, uh, uh, this, this negativity, right? It's just, it's like you know, Dave, what. You, the things that you do in the restaurant, you ask people to do the impossible all the time. You ask you ask people to like work um, the craziest hours, do the most difficult things. In in business, people do this all the time. Um, why in the public health world are we so shy about saying what's actually needed? And why are so many people who've never tried this dismissing this out of hand? I I, I don't get it. Uh, and this is why I'm doing this show. This is why I'm doing what I'm doing. Look, I, I, we're, we're so focused on Massachusetts because already just, uh, you know, five weeks ago when I, when I talked to, uh, Governor Baker about doing it, I, you know, uh, nobody was talking about any of this stuff. And so, and now, you know, we're working with Ohio, we're working with Illinois. This is Partners in Health. We're working with the city of Newark and the list grows, uh, because just putting out there the possibility of doing this, people are beginning to respond. And, and by the way, the, the other piece of this is, the White House has said that putting testing and contact tracing on the uh, on the agenda is critical because you need to have those systems in place if you're going to open up, right? So, you know, the conversation has changed completely in five weeks. At least people know that we have to put it in place um, to to, uh, uh, to to open up the economy. Uh, uh, we're we're just trying to get the point out that you got to be. You got to be aggressive on it. You will, we'll help you. We're going to, we're going to create a consortium so that all these states can talk to each other. And you got to find leadership where you find it. I mean, right now, uh, the leadership is, is in the governors. And so, um, uh, it's been a great privilege for me, you know, to talk to, to Governor Prisker of Illinois and Governor DeWine of Ohio, Governor Baker of, uh, of Massachusetts, because they, they get it. These guys now have been fighting this virus and they get the idea of now going on offense. It doesn't help if one governor doesn't want to do it this way, though, right? Because the way the virus works, we all need to be on the same page. Yeah, it's true. Um, and if you guys have a better strategy for how to get this going, <laughs> I'm all ears, man. Because, I, I think Dave put yeah. it out there already. Yeah. Dave already suggested the strategy. Uh, Dr. Kim, <laughs> no, unilateral no. leader. No. Nope, you're no, I mean, I mean, I mean, Dr. Kim, I can only see it from my perspective, and I'm not just from the food handling safety perspective protocols and if they can't get consensus on this state by state i was like how how is this going to happen on on the higher levels here and it's very concerning so again like i am just in the food universe but i'm constantly hearing the same things that you hear and see on the news and everyone's saying the impossible is happening i mean it's impossible you cannot do this you cannot do that even within my own team and it's understandable right we're trying to imagine scenarios of how you reopen up you know what would be the most safe environment you know let's create the most 
ideal safe environment, as impossible as that sounds, but we want to know what impossible is because that's what we need to make happen. And it's right now hard because everyone's like, it's impossible. You can't do that. I was like, that's the only way we're going to solve this is make right. the impossible happen. Exactly. And so what, what's happening in Asia, Dave? I mean, I, I, I you know, the, apparently in China now, um, the restaurants are full outside of Beijing and outside of Wuhan. Wuhan is still sort of being very tentative, but it seems like they've uh, opened. But is it without social distancing? I, ju- I just don't know. What, what are you hearing? Um, it's a mix of that, right? Like people are still going out to dinner. They are, but it's not busy. No one's busy. And that's the problem is um, almost everyone seems to be at 50% occupancy or something around that. Uh, you know, in Hong Kong, that's certainly the case. You know, we had Eddie Huang, who's in Taipei, and he told us that nightclubs reopened up, but no one was really going to the nightclubs either. So people are still fearful. And the whole idea of how you operate in a restaurant with social distancing and PPE is a whole nightmare. So I don't think anyone really has an idea, but I've been trying to focus all my efforts at trying to compile what it looks like in Asia to get best-in-class practices and to bring them back over here. And that's the reality. It's like, do we need to have thermal imaging? I understand that it's asymptomatic and you could still pass it, but I was like, it's still one more layer that we're telling everybody this is how seriously we're taking this. And I was like, oh, it's too expensive. I was like, well, let's find a way to make this work regardless. Like, how do we make this happen? So... You know, this is the only time you'll ever hear me optimistic about all of this is how do we make the impossible happen? And on the restaurant level, I would love all the help we can get. But starting with PPE is if hospitals still can't get their gear that they need and hopefully it's getting better, it's like, what are we going to do with restaurant employees and essential workers? How do we, is just a homemade mask good enough? Like, what do we do moving forward? And and also the cost associated with this, because it's already the have and have nots before this happened. And I'm really worried about all the, you know, the, the restaurants that are in uh, impoverished areas. Like, how are they going to get the gear they need to function? Yeah. The gear issue is a serious one for still everybody. And uh, I, you know, I still... Um, am working to help Massachusetts get their gear, you know, mostly from China. They're the, they're the largest makers of the gear. I, you know, my sense is that the gear problem will, will work itself out, you know, um, over the next few months. Uh, there, you know, certainly, uh, you know, companies are, are, uh, are, uh, ramping up their production. Uh, but I'm, I mean, I just, I, I think that it's going to require, um, the, the uh, operators themselves to s- just have great things to think with. I mean, examples to think with. Um, I, you know, the, the universities, we're looking at uh, things like, um, uh, you know, proximity programs. That's what Google and Apple are working on, that uh, you can tell, you know, whether you're close to somebody who's either been positive or is positive or, you know, has symptoms even. Uh, and I, I, I hope that, that, uh, uh, that, those, uh, that those things work out. But you guys should probably talk to the Apple Googles uh, of the world. I mean, they're they're really they they've uh, we've been in contact with them through the Massachusetts program, and they're very interested in working with with us to see if they're um, if these uh, proximity enabled phones can help in some way to to uh, uh, figure out how much of uh, e- economies you can open up. So I, I you know I'd look at that. Have you guys been looking at that at all? Well, as know, an association or something, as a restaurant association, we haven't, but we know that's uh, happening in some of the countries in Asia right now, right? Um, you know, using the the barcode scanner, and you can sort of figure out exactly where someone's been. But no, we haven't spoken to anyone from the the tech side about what's happening and or moving forward. So, if uh, I, you know, after this call, I'd be happy to connect you to the many, many, many folks who email me and call me to try to, to try to see. I mean, you know, that, that's the great thing about getting started is that now we're, everyone wants to be part of this thing that's actually happening. So, I, I, you know, again, I would say try to get started somewhere, right? What, what's, what's it going to look like and how, how can people be um, uh, creative about it? I, you know, there's, there's, there's some things that we learned. Masks are much more helpful than we ever thought. I mean, we used to say uh, masks, masks don't help that much because the, si- the virus uh, particle size is so small. But now I think we know that it helps a lot. So everyone wearing masks, but it's just hard to wear a mask when you're eating food, right? It's not hard right. to wear a mask when you're serving food, but there has to be some way of uh, of doing it creatively is there is there is there a way of using uh you know these uh, i you know uh, i've seen these big sort of uh, the head pieces where the uh, the plastic comes down yep. and comes out and, you know who knows maybe maybe that's a way of uh, of uh, protecting people 
Well, that's what we've been sort of game planning. Maybe it's a surgical mask with that face shield that seems to maybe be the most cost-effective solution moving forward. But, you know, we're asking ourselves ridiculous questions that we never thought we'd had to ask, but now we have to. So um, can I ask, in terms of this gear and what you're doing, and so much of it seems to be coming from China, like a lot of people are like, what's an N95? What's a KN95? Do you, should, should I get a sterilized surgical mask? What do you think someone should just have moving forward? <laughs> yeah. Well, um, you know, I, I think that, again, the data on wearing masks and gloves when you go outside are now very good and, and that you should. You should have, you know, and, and you know, the, the, there are some studies. I don't know uh, the, the details of the studies, but there are some studies that show that you know, of course, having an N95 mask with a, with a little square piece in the front is a state of the art. But, you know, w- using those and wearing those, uh, you probably shouldn't because those should be reserved for healthcare workers uh, um, who are exposed a lot. But I think, you know, that the, a lot of the different masks now that are available are, are, are pretty effective. And, and so, uh, uh, you know, I, again, evidence is really great for that. Now, how will this work itself out overall? Um, I just don't think that there's going to be any country that's going to be able to, to produce at the quantity that's needed in the world, um, uh, other than China for a while. I mean, there, there are other countries that are now beginning to, to, to scale up, but they just have so much scale there. And so, um, you know, we, we're, uh, uh, getting stuff out of, uh, out of China as well in Shanghai. And there's something like 330 flights a day coming in and out trying to get, uh, PPE. Uh, out of there, and it's uh, every state in the United States, with and and uh, and uh, you know everybody in in Europe as well. So I, I hope that this equalizes over time. I hope that um, uh, that that it's going to be much much more broadly available. I think I think it should be, but I, I think it speaks to something much larger. You, you know, Dave, after the um, uh, after nine eleven. Uh, uh, air travel changed permanently. I mean, people can, people can hardly remember that we used to not have to go through all that security screening. It seems like a different time. And I think now, um, because we know that a single virus, uh, can bring down the entire global economy and do this, uh, to the world, uh, things will change forever. I think public health is going to be a much bigger part of everyone's consciousness going forward. And, um, uh, it's time for creativity. You know, what are the creative ways for us to do this? Um, you know, you can't, uh, if you remember uh, that crazy movie um, about uh, Get Smart, where they had the cones of silence, right? Yeah. So you can't quite do that. But what can you do? I I, I don't know. And, and uh, I, I guess of all the industries I worry about, the restaurant industry is one of the ones I worry most about. I mean, you, you what, what a loss uh, for all yeah. of us. You know, I, I was on a call with, uh, you know, the mad board call with Rene Wazepi and several chefs from America, and yeah. he was telling me, you know, what it's like in Scandinavia right now and, and in Denmark and how optimistic everyone is and people are out and about. And I was like, that's not, <laughs> that's not what's happening here. And it's hard for someone to see outside of where they're living right now. But what, what is exactly like Denmark doing that's so different than America? Well, Denmark, Finland, and Norway did very effective um, uh, social distancing. And Sweden is doing something uh, a little bit different, and it's going to be really interesting to see uh, where the Sweden situation ends up. But Sweden has uh, has been much looser about the contact that people at relatively very low risk uh, can have. So uh, they've really protected uh, nursing home residents. They've protected the elderly. They've protected people with underlying medical conditions. And um, they've kind of let young people and others who are at low risk have contact with each other. And so they're thinking that they're going to get to about 20 to 25 uh, percent of the of the people in uh, in Sweden uh, with exposure to the virus. Now, you know, the most optimistic uh, appraisals are that that if you get to 60 percent of your um, population with exposure to the virus and antibodies, that you'll have something they call herd immunity. That there'll be enough people who are immune that it'll be very difficult for the virus to, to really spread quickly because enough people have the uh, innate immunity. You know, there's arguments about whether 60% is enough. Do you have to have 70 or 80%? Uh, but, uh, but, uh, Sweden is going on uh, along that route. Now it's cost them. 
because their death rate has been, uh, you know, double, three times, four times that of the neighboring countries that have been much more aggressive with, uh, uh, with, uh, with their, uh, uh, social distancing measures. And it's, 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 it's unclear whether this will work out for Sweden. But if you look at Sweden and you compare it to the United States, some people say, well, we should try that in the United States. I just, you know, the, the, there's so much more poverty in the United States. Uh, and, and, um, uh, the, the virus is affecting, uh, communities of color, African Americans, Latinos, communities of color, um, uh, you know, poor people, people who live in small, uh, apartments with many to the, to the same apartment. It's, it's moving along the fault lines of society so severely that's hard to imagine what a program like that would look like in the United States. Would you quarantine then all African Americans, all Latinos, you know, any poor person? What would, would you support them? Um, how would you prevent a kind of differential mortality where this just takes out, you know, uh, poor people, people of color and, uh, uh, and, 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 and young people, especially young wealthy people do better. I just think it'd be harder to do here. But, you know, we're watching it very uh, carefully. Um, it, you know, the Nordic countries are extremely, extremely homogenous and they obey uh, rules and orders. I think, you know, um, much more, uh, what's the right word? I, I think, I think they, they obey these, these social distancing measures. Um, uh, I, I think, uh, uh, with more fealty and, and, uh, you know, if you do that, I mean, one of the things we've learned is that if you really abide by the social uh, distancing uh, recommendations, you wear masks, you wear gloves, uh, you know, you ha can have a huge impact on the transmission. I, I, you know, Norway is 4 million people. Denmark is about the same. You know, Sweden, 5 million people, maybe. Sweden is the largest country. They have 9 million people. You know, we're, 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 we're not talking about huge populations in which we see this. I think, I think the Nor the, um, Australian and New Zealand examples are much more interesting for, um, uh, for the United States. You know, again, they started much earlier, uh, but the fact that, that they saw the kind of drops that they did, uh, is, is really what we have to be shooting for, uh, uh literally in every state in the United States. Um, can you explain, you know, cause it's something I'm reading quite a bit about is, is the antibodies or or how long you might have immunity? Is this how, how problematic is this? Well, um, we still don't know. I mean, uh, we're still trying to figure out, you know, whether you have immunity. There, there were these cases of people who had the virus and then uh, in Korea and then uh, got got seemed to be, you know, uh, get sick again. And it looks like that in those cases it wasn't reinfection, but it was sort of a smoldering illness that that got that better and worse and so um you know they probably do have immunity uh but in studies of looking at antibody titers how much antibody they have in their blood the results have been all over the place so some have a lot of antibody some have a, a, a little bits of antibody but i think that the smartest people i know are saying that um for the most part for the, the vast majority of patients who've been exposed to coronavirus who have it had it at one point in their in their bodies that um, uh, they're probably going to be uh, immune. So, you know, I, I don't, I don't think it's better than that. I, I, I think it's, it's premature to say that they're all immune and that people can get a antibody passport that allows them to do whatever they want. I think it's premature for that. But the studies are ongoing. We'll know soon enough uh, just, just how protective previous infection is and whether you can test antibody levels and then use that um, uh, in any kind of definitive way. You know, again. Don't know for sure, but we'll know, we'll know soon enough. You know, another thing that I've just seen talking to other chefs in other cities that are operating takeaway and delivery right now is there seems to be this divide. And I want to know your thoughts on this with all your experience seeing, you know, quarantine in other countries and other places, um, a divide between young and old, right? If, if you're under, say, 35 and you're not married, you're open. <laughs> and, and and you're just like let's go let's do this and everyone else with kids a little bit older they're just playing it way more conservative that's not true obviously there's exceptions but that seems to be the the fault line here is young versus old on how you approach this is this something that you're seeing right now in general yeah i think um well so, so um the the thing that uh, the, the the folks on the front lines, the, the you know me, the physicians and nurses on the front lines, what they're telling me, and I take this very seriously. First of all, you know it's incredible 
um, the heroism that you're seeing on an everyday basis with these uh, with the healthcare workers. Uh, but what they're telling me is that they are they when they see um, uh, photos and videos of young people going out and sort of saying, "Well, you know, I'm young and and uh, uh, you know, I, I I shouldn't be locked down. I'm going to be fine." Uh, they see them as transmitters. They see them as people who could potentially transmit it to the people that they're fighting every day to save their lives. So, you know, um, again, you know, there has to be a, a certain level of solidarity in, in, the, in the society uh, so that, that, that uh, you know, people do the right thing and protect each other. Uh, I, I think that um, uh, almost every leader who's done well in, uh, in, in responding to the virus has really focused on the solidarity part that I know that you young people think that you're immune to this thing, but that's not what we're worried about. We're worried about you transmitting this to older people. And so if you look at the, uh, the, the situation in American universities, um, I heard a figure, uh, and I don't know what the number is, but it's going to be in this range that, uh, on any college campus, 20 to 30% of the people on the campus are over 60. Right? So you've got all these young people who are going to say, we, we want to party as much as we want. We want to do whatever we want. Come on, we're not really at risk. Uh, but they're going to be in touch with cafeteria workers. They're going to be in touch with janitors. They're going to be in touch with, you know, security officers, professors, everybody. And so uh, in order to open up a university, you're going to have to have a very high degree of commitment from university students to not just go crazy and, and, and say infection doesn't bother us because it's really not about them for the most part. It's about protecting, uh, you know, the, the people in their community. Can we reach that level of solidarity uh, in, in the United States? Well, we have no choice. We've got to try. We've got to try to find right. our way to get there. Um, in terms of what I was talking about, like the age difference, right? You know, we, we're really game planning all kinds of scenarios to reopen up. But one of the things that we're constantly coming back to is, you know, some people have kids and they're like, do I want to go to work and maybe get my kids sick? Is that how real of a possibility is that if you're properly wearing PPE and you're doing all these things, like there's no guarantee that you won't get it, bring it back yeah. home. And, and that's, what's making, I think the decision, not just for myself, like so many people in the restaurant industry so hard is how do you do this and not get anyone sick? Even if you're asymptomatic. Yeah. So, uh, you know, for healthcare workers, one of the ways that they've tried to solve this problem is to set up dormitories for healthcare workers. You know, at Brown University, uh, what uh, President Chris Paxson did, which was, I think, great, was that she um, uh, set aside some dormitories for uh, first responders, police officers, EMTs, et cetera. Uh, now, you know, it's really hard to think about what it would be like if, um, it, you know, to say that since I'm going to work, I'm going to live apart from my family. I think that would be extremely hard. Uh, but again, I, you know, we have to be creative. Can we, can we find a way so that, you know, if, um, you know, some of the hospitals are doing one week on and one week off so that they spend, uh, during the week that they're on, often they, the, uh, uh, the healthcare workers will be staying in a dormitory, right? And then on the week that they're off, they'll, they'll get completely, uh, you know, disinfected as best that they can and then go back home for a week. Uh, you know, it'll, it'll, it, it may look something like that. You know, again, you guys would have to figure it out. Uh, there may have to be something like uh, uh, dormitories for frontline workers. And, and if that's the case, let's start thinking about it now. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting because I think that throughout this conversation, you know, we've used language like uncharted territories and making the impossible happen. But at the same time, <laughs> it's not uncharted for public health right you've you've done this you've seen this this virus like the idea of epidemiology and virus spreading and all this this is a science that has been studied forever absolutely and it's not impossible because asia has done it i, I think like you're right dr kim we, we have to appeal to americans sense of solidarity but also maybe our sense of <laughs> competitiveness yeah like what happened to american exceptionalism what happened to we should be able to do this better than anybody else in the world you know, um, I had a conversation with Tony Fauci, and uh, it was early on. It was, you know, before I spoke with the go Governor Baker, and uh, Tony's an old friend of mine. We worked together on uh, tuberculosis, HIV for, you know, 20, 25 years ago. And so I said, Tony, uh, why are we only focused on social distancing? Shouldn't we put all the other pieces together? And Tony said, well, we're really working hard to try to convince a very skeptical public that they should go into social distancing. And he told me, but in a perfect world, of course we'd have all those things. 
And so I said, so what do you think, Tony, about me trying to start this in one state? And he said, go for it, Jim. You know, as much as you can do, go for it. And so now that I reflect on that, we've got to create the perfect world. I mean, I, I wish we had a choice. I wish there was another way to do it. I just don't see an, another path toward uh, doing this. Um, uh, you know, again, the Sweden path is one that I think would just have such uh, uh, implications for differential mortality of the poor and of specific communities of color. I don't think you can go down that path. So this is like the only thing we have. Um, uh, it, it's, 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 to, it's not, it's, it will never be perfect, but if we could get Americans to say, oh, okay, well, look, we've done that before. Let's go after it. You know, during the, um, uh, during the HIV epidemic of the early 2000s, uh, I was trying to convince the, the uh, public health community, myself and, and many others, but, uh, of, of, uh, the need to treat HIV in Africa. I just said, you know, we cannot be known as the generation that stood by passively while a genocide occurred in Africa. Now, the lucky thing is President Bush agreed and started the program to treat uh, HIV uh, uh, positive people in Africa, which was, I think, you know, the, the most important thing that happened during that time. Uh, but what I would say all the time is that, you know, guys, I just don't get it. So we have 25 million people living with HIV in Africa. Almost none of them are on HIV treatment. And yet we now have treatment that's one pill in the morning, one pill in the afternoon. Uh, please, you know, please don't tell me that that's too complicated. And I made the, um, uh, I, 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 I made the, um, uh, comparison to the time when President Kennedy said, we're going to go to the moon, right? And, uh, then folks at NASA didn't say, it's too far. It's too hard. We can't do it. We don't even know what the moon's made of. They didn't do that. They just said, they just said, well, that might not have been our top priority. And, and, and I've heard that it, it wasn't necessarily their top priority, but they said, what a great goal. We're going to figure it out. That's the moment we're facing. We're facing a moment in which we have to do the impossible, in which we have to create the perfect world that Tony talked to me about six and a half weeks ago. Too bad. I wish there was another way to do it, but that's what we have to do. And uh, in, if, the, oh, if, you, if the only thing you care about is loosening up uh, the, 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 the restrictions on movement and social distancing, then you got to have it anyway. So, uh, uh you know, uh, 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 the notion that, uh, you're going to go and, and well, let's just let everyone get infected. Let's not build this public health system. You know, let's, let's, uh, decide on what a tolerable number of deaths is. Let's go forward, get 60%, uh, uh, herd immunity, and then we'll be fine. Yeah. Against this virus. But it's not going to protect us against the next virus. It might not even protect us against the next wave of uh, of the COVID of of, of COVID uh, that hits in the fall or the winter that might have already mutated and uh, and uh, and we may have lost immunity uh, to to the new bug. The new world is 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 going to be a world in which. Unfortunately, Dave, great restaurateurs are going to have to think about public health in everything that they do. Um, and, you know, we as a public health community uh, have to now step up and provide, uh, you know, uh, uh, not just sort of complaints or, you know, doomsday predictions or say we can't do it. We've got to we've got to jump in and try to help the restaurant business, uh, you know, uh, grocery stores, all these other businesses figure out the best way uh, to take um, uh, to, to, to take our lives forward. And I, you know, find find people who uh, have some public health expertise who can work with restaurateurs and come up with a with a with a plan. And I think that of all the things that uh, we can put um, you know our money into, figuring out a way to do this so that so many people can get their jobs back uh, is a wonderful way to spend uh, the, the the U.S.'s money. I couldn't agree more. Oh my God. You know, Dr. Kim, quickly, we were talking about it again last week with Eddie Huang when he was in Taipei. Why are all the Asian countries, is there something about Asia that allows them to just kick the crap out of COVID better than anyone else? Like, what is going on? I think they just, the SARS and MERS just scared the shit out of everybody. It just scared the shit out of everybody. Uh, and it's just like it scares the shit out of us now, right? So, what they did was they said they said well look um now that we see that that a single virus uh coronavirus uh can have this wreak this kind of havoc we're never going to be unprepared again right and and so uh, a a big part of what i'm trying to do to get this much more robust 
response in place is because this is what's going to prepare us for whatever comes next, right? And so, um, uh, you know, $11,000 per person was spent on medical care, $286 per person was spent on public health in 2018. You, you can't expect to be ready for something like this if you've underspent on, uh, on, on public health all this time. So this is the new world. And, uh, uh, the, the Asian countries just, you know, they got religion on this sooner than us because of the, the, the previous scares. Uh, we just need to do this now. You know, and Dave, I'm, I, I, there was a, I just did a, another radio show actually this morning and I was asked the same question. Is there something about Asia? Uh, that led to all this. I, I, I just, I don't think so. You know, you, you know, I'm an anthropologist, right? I, st- I, uh, I did my PhD in anthropology. I don't think there's some kind of essential Asian thing about all this. I just think that um, people's experience uh, really had a, 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 a profound impact on their understanding of how bad it can get. Even in Korea, because Korea didn't have SARS that bad, right? It had mares. It had mares. mares. It, it had it had the, the so-called Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, and uh, you know when I when I talked to the folks at the Korea CDC, they said mares scared us to death. We'd never seen a virus that had a thirty percent death rate before, and we got on top of it. And there were only you know there were less than fifty cases, but uh, but they said you know that that scared the death scared us to death. We changed the laws. We changed the laws to allow us to do all these other things because we knew that we may need it someday. And boy, um, you know, uh, it was, uh, it was, it was really important that they were able to do all the things that they were doing. And, you know, because they're so aggressive and because they have so many, uh, uh, uh different technologies and people are cooperating, there's such a sense of solidarity about this. Um, they, uh, they're, they're, they've been able to keep the economy running to a much greater extent than other countries that, that have been affected. They were the second most affected country for a while, remember. Uh, you know, and uh, Dave, the, the other thing is, um, they went through the Asian financial crisis in the late 1990s. And the story in Korea, uh, that not a lot of people, I, I don't think it got out very much, but you, you may remember, Dave, in, in the late 1990s, um, uh, Korean people, uh, brought their jewelry, their silver and gold jewelry, and they deposited uh, at the Ministry of Finance. There was a big receptacle where people could put their jewelry and just people taking jewelry, diamonds, uh, you know, I, I think it was mostly gold and silver, um, uh, bringing their gold and silver to this repository. Uh, they raised a billion U.S. dollars uh, to try to help with the, uh, the Asian financial crisis. So, I, you know, this is a kind of a test. The countries that can uh, band together in solidarity most effectively are the ones who are going to come out of this uh, uh, in the best shape. Well, shit. <laughs> <laughs> don't be don't be depressed, guys. Look, I you know <laughs> I can tell you that during our struggles around drug resistant TB, which was much smaller, but during the struggles around HIV, I mean it it felt like this, right? I I, I felt such a sense of desperation. When I was head of the HIV department in uh, in the World Health Organization, and we still had so many people saying, 25 million people in Africa, I'm afraid we're talking about the next generation. And a very famous, powerful person said exactly that. I, w- I felt such a sense. And, and, you know, it wasn't, I don't think that sense of desperation was shared by people in the United States very much because it was something that was so distant. Uh, but, man, staring down the barrel of 25 million people uh, and telling them that they're dead because they happen to have been born in Africa, uh, I was just as scared then. And so uh, with this, you know, um, we're we're talking about the wealthiest country in the history of the world. We're talking about the, you know, some of the most educated people in the history of the world. You know, we should be able to do this, uh, but we'll only be able to do this if people know what it is that we're trying to do. We're trying to do what Tony uh, 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 Tony Fauci said was a perfect world, and uh, uh, while it will never be perfect, it can be so much more uh, 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 forward-leaning, you know, aggressive. Take on the virus. We can do that so much more than we are right now. Uh, and I, I think, it, you know, it's it's what I'm getting inspired by the people who become our contact tracers. Thirty-five thousand applications for. You know, we are, we've hired about a thousand people, 35,000 applications. And, and a lot of them are uh, those workers, but they, you know, they're telling us they want to work. Uh, they, they, they want to do something to, to, to help. Uh, they want to fight the virus. 
their their you know some of the interviews uh, the interviewees were in tears because they so badly wanted to help and do something do something um, uh, uh, positive instead of just sitting in their uh, in, in their homes. So if that spirit spreads, uh, then uh, I, I think we have reasons to be optimistic. There you go. I won't quit. I'll tell you that, Dave. You know me. I, I, I won't quit on this one. And so we'll see where it goes. No, I, I am like, <laughs> you know, every time I, I talk to somebody that's a elected official or higher up and I'm always like disappointed, I'm always reminded that there are people like you out there doing the work and making the impossible happen. So I, 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 it is depressing as all hell when you think about everything else. But, you know, Chris has heard me say this over and over again is when I start thinking about the impossible, that's when I get excited. That's when exactly. you see like you know, optimism in my voice, like a pep in my step, because I'm like, well, that's the only fucking thing we can do. So we got to do it. I don't know Absolutely, how, but Dave. we got to get there. Yeah. So this is, if I can go back into history a little bit, you've known me for a while now, Dave, and now, you know, we've talked about the various things I've done, but this is why, you know, when the board at Dartmouth College said, who's the one guy <laughs> you want to meet in the world? Because we can get to anybody <laughs> I said, I want to meet Dave Chang because I, I, I read the New Yorker piece and I said, I want anyone who can drop that many F-bombs in one New Yorker piece, I want to meet. But even more importantly, his determination and, you know, his uh, intolerance of uh, mediocrity, uh, you know, this is what we all need. And, and that's what we're talking about, Dave. I mean, so far, you know, I, I have to say, you know, the, the public health response has just been mediocre. And has been defeatist and has been, you know, um, uh, thinking that we're living in a time of scarcity. I, you know, uh, this is exactly the wrong approach. We have to say to everyone who will listen, um, it, you know, if you want to stop the financial crisis, if you want to stop the restaurant crisis, if you want to stop the, you know, the, the, the frontline worker crisis, you got to stop the public health crisis and you got to spend whatever it takes to get there. Um, uh, We'll get there. And I, and I think that the more we stand up real programs that are really taking on the virus, that are really showing results, uh, the more that that will be undeniable and that uh, um, the, the, uh, the, the, the politicians will come through. Well, we should end on that note. I see why you like this guy, Dave. <laughs> right? <laughs> it is heartening to hear, hear him speak, man. Dr. Kim, thank you for the work you've been doing. And, and I, I mean, this is depressing, but it really is heartening to hear from you. Well, thank you guys. And I feel so badly about, you know, your, the, the workers in the restaurant industry. You know, we're, we're doing this for them, too. We're going we're gonna to try to get this back on track. And I do hope that uh, once we get these contact tracing programs and others uh, up and running, that we can, you know, specifically look out for people in the restaurant industry to, you know, give them some good work to do to tide them over. Uh, that's what we hope. Well, hopefully you enjoyed that. This was, a, I think, a relatively uh, more serious podcast. Uh, I would like to put it in the bucket of Too Small to Fail because what Michael Kim was talking about on his Twitter thread about contact tracing is what Dr. Kim sort of reinforced over and over and over again, that the U.S. needs to employ many contact tracers to go on the offensive and combat COVID-19. And I think this is going to have to entail somehow the hospitality industry. Um, whether we like it or not, whenever we open up our restaurants, we're going to have to do contact tracing for guests that come in. Again, I, I'm not sure of the legalities of this, but it's something we're going to need to do because I think that it's just the right thing to do. So I wanted to talk about this. I wanted Dr. Kim on this podcast because uh, I think this is a very serious matter, something we need to speak more openly and more frequently about, about what we can do to make sure that our government is getting up to speed. And it doesn't mean that Korea is going to be victorious or anything like that, but they're doing everything that they can. And I think that if we are more vocal about this, and uh, at least within our own businesses, we can start to do these things too. I hope so. Anyway, I think we'll lump this in into a Too Small to Fail podcast. Stay tuned this week. We're going to have another podcast. Thanks so much. <laughs>